Good evening, and ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the fourth and the last Darcy lecture of this term. And the lecture series, again, is sponsored by Campion Hall. And this year, the lecture series is focusing on the 400th anniversary of Mattel Ricci's passing. Um, our series is entitled Dragon and Cross, Contemporary Chinese Perspectives on Christianity in China. In the past three lectures, we examined three particular works by Chinese scholars today. These works are set against different social environment in different historical period. They're related to different religious traditions, Catholic, Protestant, and popular religious beliefs. Methodologically, they are historical, anthropological, and sociological, and sometimes even cross-disciplinary. But under what circumstances have Chinese scholars developed their perspectives? In what ways have the Chinese scholars played a part in our understanding of Christianity in China today? What are some of the issues that they are paying more attention to so that they distinguish themselves in the larger international academic community? And in what ways can both Chinese and Western scholars work together so as to add more knowledge and make more contribution to our understanding of cross-cultural exchanges between China and the West through the study of Christianity in China? These are rather large questions. So in this final lecture, I would like to attempt to connect dots by sharing some of the observations that I have relating to the above questions. If the intention of doing that, of course, is not so much so of offering any magic solutions, but to just cast my humble opinions and attract more valuable contributions. Christianity in China has endured a much burdened past, as we observed through our brief review of Christianity in modern Chinese history. As a result, attitudes held by Chinese intellectuals towards religion, Christianity in particular, and their studies of it are also inevitably affected by the social environment they have lived in. In modern China, nothing, nothing had been more profound in terms of influence on the Chinese psyche than Karl Marx's proclamation that religion is the spiritual opium of the people. This certainly has affected the society as a whole towards religion, any religion, for a long period of time in China. Opium, an addictive narcotic substance, is not anything unfamiliar to us. However, once it is associated with modern history of China, it implies human misery and tragedy because of its addiction. The humiliating defeats by Western powers as the result of the two opium wars in the 19th century and beyond, and devastating unequal treaties that resulted in cessions of land and indemnity and repatriation. In reality, many Western missionaries in the 19th century came with the notorious opium merchants and their rapidly spreading presence in China was protected by the unequal treaties. Take this person, 
Karl Gustav, 1803 to 1851, for example, he was one of the earliest Protestant independent missionaries to China and was closely associated with the opium trade, believe it or not. According to Kathleen Ludwig, an American historian, he traveled on opium vessels plying China's coastal waters so that he could distribute his Christian tracts from one side of the ship while the merchants smuggled opium from the other. Furthermore, many missionaries were constantly pushing the issue of treaty rights to the limit, benefiting directly from the humiliating defeat of the Chinese, many of whom the missionaries tried to convert later on, according to Gary Tiedemann. More troublesome and unforgiving by the Chinese is also the fact that many missionaries were active participants in helping their prospective governments to draft, translate, and finalize the unequal treaties with their own evangelization agenda. In the Sino-French Convention of Beijing in 1860, in addition to the existing articles that basically guarantee anything, everything that missionaries would do in the country without being concerned about uh, local laws. Louis Delamar, an MEP priest, added a disturbing line in the Chinese version as follows, although he's fully aware the French version was the official treaty. And this is the French version of the treaty, but the line that he added in Chinese states, it is, in addition, permitted to French missionaries to rent and purchase land in all the provinces and to erect buildings thereon at pleasure. This addition later on became, among others, one of the direct causes of conflicts between the Catholic Church, the Han migrants, and Mongolians in Inner Mongolia over a series of land issues, which I will mention later on in the lecture. Granted that missionaries were not directly involved in any open trade, and as a matter of fact, many were openly against the opium addiction and set up many opium refuges to help locals to kick the habit. Their rival with the opium merchants and the protection they enjoyed immensely under the unequal treaties casted a long-lasting shadow in the minds of the Chinese. With the bitter memory of the 19th and early 20th century of this historical event as a lasting open wound, the social and the political environment as a whole in China during the first 80 years of the 20th century has been anything but favorable to the presence of Christian religions and even more so to the study of Christianity in China. The mainstream intellectual culture in the country had always been anti-religious during the period. With the downfall of the last imperial dynasty in 1911, some of the most prominent and liberal Chinese intellectuals at the time, such as Chen Duxiu, Hu Shi, and Lu Xun, led a series of social movements in the 1920s, such as the New Culture and Anti-Christian Movement. These movements, promoting the role of science and democracy and denouncing the role of Confucianism and all religions in social progress, intensified this mainstream intellectual mind, which is, as I said, anti-religious throughout China. 
And one of them said, and I translate into English, only the increase of knowledge for the natural world, namely science, is the right path to profit the society and awaken the mass. Religion resembles those idols to be worshipped and is not beneficial whatsoever to govern the country and to moralize people. Therefore, we should bravely speak out of our denunciation. The Chinese Communist Party, of course, founded in uh, the early 1920s, incorporated this open thesis as one Chinese scholar categorized and a notion of cultural aggression into their own revolutionary and anti-imperialism ideology. Any beliefs that could not be justified by their role in the revolution would be denounced and discarded in the name of the national interests. With its sweeping victory in 1949, it is really not surprising that for the following three decades after 1949, that religion is the spiritual opening of the people, simple in its expression, easy to be associated with historical events and revolutionary movements served as the guiding principle for the government's policies towards religious affairs and its total control over academic expression. Thus, Chinese scholars in contemporary history and other disciplines were living under the shadow of the past memory and dominated by an ideology that had been pervasive for almost a hundred years. In spite of the long presence of Christianity in China, research works by Chinese scholars on the subject were rather limited during the above period. However, among the limited but most noticeable works are two by prominent Chinese historians. Their studies, to a great extent, laid a foundation for future generation of Chinese scholars. The first such a scholar is by the name of Chen Yuan, the first Chinese president of the Furen Catholic University in Beijing from, uh, from 1926 to 1952. And after 1952, the university was incorporated into the Beijing Normal University. One of the best historians in contemporary China, his pioneering study in 1918 on Nestorians in the Yuan Dynasty of China, 1271 to 1368, is probably the earliest scholarly research on the history of Christianity in China by a Chinese scholar. The research explores the direct connection between what is known then in the Yuan Dynasty as Ye Li Ke Wen Jiao, Nestorians, and Nestorians in Tang Dynasty 500 years before. This work has inspired many later historians of this particular subject and beyond, and become one of the classics in Chinese studies of Christianity in China. And I want to point out something else as a kind of a uh, bottom of the page footnote. There have been a significant amount of new research works on Nestorians in China in recent years because of an increasing amount of new evidence due to new archeological findings and anthropological research. And our campaign hall here on Brewer Street and also holds one of the rare Nestorian crosses unearthed along the Yellow River. And a comparison of this cross 
to other findings indicates how similar these crosses are. The two other uh, illustrations are from a, a research paper by a professor in the early 1960s at the University of um, Hong Kong. And it's interesting that to notice that, you know, how similar they are. Another prominent Chinese scholar is by the name of Feng Hao, and he's a Jesuit and internationally known historian. Among many of his works, and many of them are on the history of Christianity in China, his book, History of Chinese Western Communication, Zhongxi Jiaotongshi, first published in Taiwan in 1953, is by far the most comprehensive study of the history of Christianity in China and is still widely used today. In addition, it contains comprehensive studies of Chinese-Western relations in the areas of economics, politics, culture, art, science, religion, and beyond. It is an exploration of Chinese civilization within the larger framework of Chinese-Western cultural relations. During the first 30 years of the People's Republic, that is between 1949 to 1979, education and scholarship were under strict control and very much politicized. Publications during this period bore the imprint of history, with the notion that religion is the spiritual opening of the people, and missionaries were representatives of the imperialists and cultural aggressors looming overhead. There was no space in academia for any research in the real sense of the word. Now, uh, beginning from the late 1970s, the economic reform brought opening to the country for its national economic growth with rapid increase of exchanges. For scholars, this reform provided new opportunities for academic freedom, including renewed exploration of the country's relations with Western countries in history. New generation of Chinese scholars were beginning to revisit some of the issues relating to Christianity in China that used to be off limits or closed cases with increasing exposures to available scholarship from the West. With less than 20 years from the early 1980s to the late 1990s, over a thousand papers, a hundred monographs, translations, compilations were published, surpassing the total number of the works in the preceding 30 years, both in terms of quantity and in terms of quality. Of course, changes took place gradually. A significant portion of the research works published in the 1980s focused on the period before the Opium War, that is, the Catholic missions, and largely the Jesuit mission in the 16th and the 17th and early 18th century, and including historical reviews, text analysis of philosophical works by missionaries and early Catholic converts and exploration of the relationship between Chinese culture and Christian beliefs. And at that time, it was considered, quote unquote, much safer. A real break took place in 1989 when a relatively small international conference uh, took place in the city of Wuhan, which is the capital, uh, provincial capital of Hubei province. Like by Professor Zhang Kaiyuan, 
a nationally known historian on the 1911 revolution and then president of Central China Normal University, the meeting was, was on the history of Christian universities and colleges. A marked beginning of systematic studies of Christianity in China after the Opium War, especially during the Republican era, in other words, 1911 to 1949. And Professor Zhang was a graduate of a missionary-sponsored university in Nanjing. And he started from then on encouraging Chinese scholars to investigate not only historical, but also educational, social, religious, political dimensions of Christianity in contemporary China. Slowly but surely, the profound dominating open thesis was giving away to academic openness. Scholars, mostly as individuals, were beginning to examine with fresh looks and attitudes towards Christianity in China. And I want to emphasize, I mean, the early, in the 1980s and early 1990s, most of the scholars working alone. The new energy among Chinese scholars was reinforced by the establishment of new institutions in this field. In the Chinese academic world, an institution establishment carries much less financial benefit, but more social recognition. During the Mao era, that is between 1950s and the mid-1970s, there was only one nationwide government-sponsored institution for the studies of religions in China, the Institute of World Religions at the Academy of Social Sciences. It served during the period more as a little recognized think tank of some sort to produce references for occasional government policies need rather than a real academic institution can provide. In the 1990s, however, research institutions on the study of religion, particularly Christian religion and its relationship with Chinese culture and history, were established in higher educational institutions, starting from major universities in Beijing and Shanghai first, but quickly spread to Hubei, Fujian, Shanxi, Zhejiang, Sichuan, Shandong, Guangdong, Liaoning, and so on and so forth. And in recent years, similar centers have also been established in such remote provinces as Gansu and Yunnan provinces, where scholars see the need to explore the historical and cultural relations locally. With the establishment of a, such a large network of institutions, came the expansion and deeper exploration of the interactions between China and the West through regular publications, conferences, exchange programs between Chinese and foreign scholars, and the participation of an increasing number of young scholars. The field was gaining momentum, and a real academic circle of vitality was flourishing. At the same time, the field of Christianity in China is advancing internationally. A paradigm shift, as Nicholas Standard pointed out, was taking place from missiological and Europe-centered focus to a more sinological and China-centered approach. Largely based on Western language sources, earlier historical research works 
devoted their primary attention to how missionaries brought Christianity to China. As the paradigm shifted to the more sinological and China-centered approach, we observe that scholars turned their attention to the country and culture missionaries brought Christianity to, and to the people who reacted to the presence and attempts of the missionaries. Further, and an increasing amount of research has been done by Chinese scholars with more and more Chinese language sources. Meanwhile, scholars caution that simple Sinocentric approach can lead to Eurocentrism turned upside down so as to function merely as a reaction to Eurocentrism, not as a real alternative to it. As I observe the growth of the field, I've noticed that the more and more Chinese scholars today are producing research works with a diversity of topics, not simply as part of the history of Christianity in China, but a history of China or a Chinese society in which Christianity figures. The focus of their discussions is gradually devoted to portrayals of persons and movements as responding not just to Western Christianity, but also to a vast and complex intellectual and social world with its own inner variety and competing currents of thoughts. For example, on the basis of earlier research on Protestant missionaries in China, a Chinese scholar, and this Chinese scholar, Dr. Liu Jiafeng of Central China Normal University, initiated his research on the relationship between Protestant missions and rural development in China in the 1920s and 1930s. Different from early works in this area, he devoted significantly his attention to the attitudes of the Chinese, both educated and farmers, as part of China's rural construction movement at the time, and again, in the 1920s and the 1930s. To deepen our understanding, he further explored three specific cases, a higher education curriculum study through agricultural experiment in Eastern China, a Christian religion indigenization process as reflected in a village in northern China, and the tension between religion and politics as illustrated in southern China. His intention is to set Christian mission with an emphasis on agricultural development in the larger framework of the indigenization and social development in contemporary Chinese society, instead of simply mission studies cases. Another study that caught my attention recently further confirms this particular observation and also indicates the research direction that Chinese scholars are taking today. Entitled, The Catholic Church and Cessation of Qing Policies Prohibiting Agricultural Development of the Mongolian Grasslands, this work was produced by a scholar from Inner Mongolia an autonomous region of China. As a historian of contemporary Chinese history, this Inner Mongolian scholar, Dr. Suda Biligo, 
focused his research on issues relating to the disintegration of traditional nomadic system in Inner Mongolia towards the end of the 19th centuries. And as a Mongolian, this particular issue appeared to be very important to him, uh, to himself. Fluent in Mongolian, English, and Chinese languages, Dr. Suda was able to employ multilingual archival sources to reconstruct an important episode of Inner Mongolian social history. And if we can recall, then earlier I mentioned this particular treaty, Sino-French Convention of Beijing. And the, with that particular treaty and the presence of the Catholic Church in Inner Mongolia as a backdrop, he carefully documented a series of disputes over lease and ownership of land in Inner Mongolia in the second half of the 19th century between local Mongolians and Chinese Catholic migrants and gradual deterioration of the long-standing policy by the Chinese government forbidding the sale and the conversion of grassland to farmland in the region. A prominent social reality as one of the direct results of these disputes was the eventual breakdown of the nomadic social structure locally. It is a research that goes beyond the Catholic Church history in Inner Mongolia, and it is a local social history with the layers of contributing factors in which Christianity is only a part. In addition to historical studies, many Chinese scholars today are also exploring Christianity in China through cross and multidisciplinary approaches. An outstanding research work was by this Chinese scholar by the name of Zhang Tan. Enabled the stone threshold in front of narrow door, this book was published in the early 1990s one of the earliest research works by Chinese scholars with a cross-disciplinary approach, history, sociology, and religion. And Mr. Zhang based his research on the growth of Christian faith in a village in South China where male ethnic minority has taken up a significant portion of the local population. While respecting the Chinese traditional historiography, namely systematic analysis of classical texts and a philosophical discussion of historical incidents, this Mr. Zhang devoted a significant amount of his time during his research interviewing the local male people and collected from them valuable first-hand information about their life, beliefs, and the local society that would fill in the gaps of resources that existing written materials in both Chinese and other Western languages do not provide. In this particular case, among other Western missionaries, the influence of this Mr. Samuel Pollard, a British Methodist missionary with the China Inland Mission, was almost legendary in southern China because of his contributions to the Chinese ethnic minority culture. The most out of outstanding of his creation for the first time of a script system for the local male minority language is noticeable today. And this is a tombstone. And on the tombstone, the script of the male ethnic language that he created is carved. And this is an enlargement.
While recognizing the history of the China Inland Mission presence and charities in the region, what the research is most interested in is the relationship between Confucianism and Christian religion as reflected in the local society, and why and why, after over 2,000 years of persistent influence, Confucianism did not become the predominant code of conduct locally. While only within 20 years, Christian religion was well embraced uh, as a main belief system by the male people. In his conclusion, he attributed such phenomenon to the universality of the Christian religion that was best presented to the locals at the best time, rather than the strong-handed surrounding of the ethnic majority pressure. Similar examples of new research works by Chinese scholars have been increasing at a rapid speed. A recent survey by a Chinese scholar, Dr. Tao Feiya, a historian, suggested that general interests of Chinese scholars are reflected in 18 different categories. From the relationship between religion and diplomacy, Chinese Christians, Christianity and Chinese society, religions, uh, religious studies, gender studies, education, to arts and sciences. Moreover, they're beginning to adopt a variety of methodological approaches as we have discussed throughout our lectures. And I should also mention that the interest and the developing scholarship in the study of Christianity in China are not simply limited to academia in China today. This Mr. Zhang and the author of the research on the Miao minority people was actually an employee of the local United Front Department, which is a government office that administers closely, among others, religious activities and implement overall religious policies. Another reference book is edited by this Ms. Jin, a research fellow from the Chinese Communist Party Literature Research Center. The publication is sponsored, also interestingly enough, in part by the Verbeest Institute at the Catholic University of Leuven, Belgium. So we have a Communist Party member, a Communist Department, and the Catholic University. Entitled, Reference Articles for Research on China's Policy on Christianity since 1949, and accompanied by a fully searchable CD in Chinese, this reference book offers a comprehensive bibliography of more than 10,000 publications on Christianity in China, published in China from 1949 to 2007, and published with the intention to provide references for national religious policies the bibliography includes books, newspaper articles, and academic journal articles that review the framework of the present policies and academic research in different major categories of political and religious issues. By dividing the bibliography into 10 different categories, the editor claims that he was able to include all major works with religious theories of Chinese characteristics and policies. In fact, much more information is included in this particular book. In one of the categories, entitled 
history, religion, and history of religion. For example, the bibliography includes publications relating to diplomatic history, social movements, gender studies, and development of Christianity in different geographical regions. The publication depicts the lively growth of the study of Christianity in China over 50 years, not only from the reference perspective for religious policy makers in the government, but also as a guide for researchers. While the research is being institutionalized with an increasing open atmosphere and a diversity of subjects, there have been an increasing number of international and local gatherings for the past years designed specifically for young scholars, both Chinese and Western, who are interested in this subject. And this is an interesting phenomenon in this particular field. For example, an annual summer institute has been offered between Purdue University in the United States and a number of Chinese co-sponsoring universities since the year 2004, offering training by distinguished Western and Chinese scholars for young Chinese doctoral and master's students in sociology and religion. Every year since the year 2003, an annual workshop has been held at the Central China Normal University for doctoral and master's students in history. And further, the Reach Institute at the University of San Francisco, where I'm from, has been co-sponsoring with the Chinese University of Hong Kong a biannual symposium since 2002 for young Chinese scholars in multi-disciplines so that they can present the research to their peers in a challenging academic environment with Chinese and Western senior scholars serving as mentors. And a historiography workshop was held just a year ago in Belgium by the Catholic University at Leuven for doctoral candidates and junior faculty members from six different countries to exchange their latest research under the guidance of senior scholars. You may recall at the first Darcy lecture, I mentioned an official document from the Italian government in 1910, inviting the then Beijing Qing government to send those who are learned and knowledgeable of language and literature from China to attend the celebration of the 300th anniversary of Ricci's passing in Italy. For many, a hundred years may be a long, long time, whereas for others, a hundred years may be just a blink of eye. Today, scholars all over the world are celebrating his 400th anniversary, Mattel Ricci's 400th anniversary. While Beijing was unable to send anybody to Italy a hundred years ago, today, an eye-catching event is going on in the city as we speak, a world-class exhibit entitled, typically in Chinese, long, Mattel Ricci, an ambassador of Chinese Western scientific, technological, and cultural exchanges in the late Ming Dynasty is being held in a city. It is, among many other things, a testimony of profound changes that have taken place between and among cultures 
and a celebration of Ricci's legacy that still inspires many today. In his book, The Nature of Belief, Martin Darcy, to whom this lecture series is dedicated, suggests that our present knowledge is the shadow of a better to come. The mental life of the idiot contracts, that of the wise man expands, he said. Chinese scholars' pursuit of knowledge and understanding of the interactions between the dragon and the cross has been a continuum of expanded search for truth and meaning in their own lives, past, present, and many years to come. In that sense, the much-burdened past in their own history is leading them to a more hopeful future. Thank you. <laughs>